chapter 2. We're on to the second chapter. We're just hustling along. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's pray and then we'll study. Father, I pray that as we come to your word that you would uh, bless us this day. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your word. This is why we teach it. We place such emphasis on it. Because your word is the word that gives us life. It's your word that sustains us. It's your word that transforms us. It's your word that saved us in the first place and your word that will continue to work out that salvation in our lives. Father, may you use me to equip the saints for the work of ministry that they may then equip to build up the body of Christ that you might be glorified through us and in us. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us, by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What we have today is a little shift, and everything is based upon what we've already done. In, in, the, in the previous chapter of Hebrews, we had the prologue, and we led into this long section where constantly quoting the Old Testament, the author was arguing to us and showing us the superiority of Christ over the angels. The superiority of God's revelation in Christ over the revelation from angels, over the revelation um, in past times. The superiority of the revelation of Christ in the New Covenant over the revelation through the prophets in the Old Covenant. Everything is better now. And he's made that argument, and you're going to see this is important. It's going to be important right the way through Hebrews. He made this argument predominantly from the Old Testament. He used the Old Covenant to show that the Old Covenant is inferior. Really important. And on the basis of that entire argument, he goes on and says, Therefore... And of course, as you always know, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you've always got to ask, what's it therefore? There you go. Because everything is linked together. There is a procession, there's a procedure, there's an argument that's flowing. Now, in many books that we've taught in the past, we, before Hebrews, did a whole uh, a sequence of books known as the prison epistles. We did Paul teaching through Ephesians, and then Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And in each of those books... Uh, perhaps with the exception of, of Philemon, with each of those books, Paul has a structure. He basically teaches theology for the first half of the book, 
And then he teaches the practice on the basis of that theology for the second half of the book. So for Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul says, essentially, this is your salvation. This is what God has done for you. This is what has been accomplished in Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Because you've been called to this great salvation, there is the, the onus, the impetus on you to live a certain way. Now Hebrews, which as you know I don't believe is written by Paul, Hebrews is structured differently. Hebrews will shift from the theology, the argument, to the practice, the exhortation, more, more frequently. So we'll have a little bit of him arguing his point and a little bit of him pushing his point. A little bit of him arguing his point, a little bit of him pushing his point. If you want the official terms, he goes from exposition to exhortation. But he's basically saying, here's the facts, here's the truth, and then he goes on and says, and this then is what you must do. Now we've just had the most part of chapter 1 with him arguing his point. The superiority of Christ. Superiority over the angels, the old covenant being surpassed by the new covenant. So now we're coming to the point. We're coming to the point and the issue that he's going to argue. And so essentially in the word therefore, he's saying, on the basis of all of this, this then now is what you need to know and what you need to do. So this is important. Secondly, by way of introduction, Hebrews is famous for many, many things. And one of the things it's most infamous for is its warning passages. Warning passages. If you come across, across any Christians who believe that somebody can become saved, not be fake saved, not make a profession but not believe, someone would be genuinely saved, believe on the gospel, the Holy Spirit would indwell them that they would be a believer in Jesus Christ, and that at some point later in their life, they would somehow reject the gospel, the Holy Spirit would leave them, and they would somehow not be saved. You say, where would you get that from in the Bible? And invariably they will say, Hebrews. And they will point to what are known as the warning passages. Well, Today we hit the first of our warning passages. And what you're going to see, and I'll give you a spoiler up front, what you're going to see is that none of these warning passages merit that kind of teaching and that kind of doctrine and that kind of understanding whatsoever. It is absolutely abundantly clear in the New Testament that a person who is a Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit when they believe. And that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not just some interesting byproduct, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God's deposit. It's his guarantee. It's his stamp of approval saying, this person is mine and I will finish my work. You don't get to just lose salvation because, you know, you fall away from the faith. Now, sure, there are people who make professions of salvation who were never saved, and it can appear to be that way. There are people who are saved and who backslide and stumble and it can appear that way. But we know that that's not what happens. And so this is the first of those passages today when I'll show you through the warning passages, pardon me, that Paul is talking about something completely different. 
I just said Paul, the writer. I don't believe it is Paul. That the writer was. I'm just so used to teaching Paul. Sorry about that. That the uh, writer will show us that he's talking about something completely different. So let's have a look at the text before us then. So therefore, on the basis of all of this, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Now I've got to be careful at this point not to lead this into being another plug for Isaiah and our series coming up. But I want you to understand what he's saying here in context. He's saying, because of the superiority of the new covenant of the old, which he has argued from the Old Testament, because of that, we need to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Now, if you think about it in context, it's quite an astonishing assertion. What he's saying is, for you Jewish believers to whom he's writing, who because of persecution, if you remember the context, are tempted to walk away from the faith, not, not deny the faith so much, but just cover it up a little bit and go back and go to the synagogue and be involved in the sacrificial systems in the temple to basically avoid persecution. For those of you who are tempted to compromise and go back to the old covenant, you need to know your old covenant better. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, You've got to pay closer attention to what you've heard. If you really knew your old covenant, he says, then you wouldn't be trying to live the old covenant way. Now, if that's true of them then, how much more true is it of us now? I tell you what, it's becoming, you know, and this, I'm kind of almost admitting my ignorance in the past here, but it just goes to show, you know, as a pastor, I'm, I'm learning all the time as well. But something I feel that has become incredibly apparent to me, even over the last six months, is again and again and again, when I hear people who have bad theology, false doctrine, just fuzzy theology, just not being clear on stuff, again and again and again, I'm finding that as I'm kind of internally sort of... Uh, um, dialoguing with this, that I'm thinking, do you know, if they knew their Old Testament properly, that wouldn't be a problem. If they understood the... the it's, it's this problem that I keep saying to you, which is that we are like those annoying people who walk in two-thirds of the way through a movie or two-thirds of the way through an episode or something. And, and, you know, my wife knows this because I do this to her often. You know, she'll, she'll watch certain TV series... Uh, on uh, Netflix or something with the kids and and you know and I don't you know some things we all watch together and some things we don't and so sometimes you watch something that I don't always watch and I'll want you know want a bit of time out I'll, I'll say oh you watch let me come and watch watch this with you and I haven't seen the last five episodes and I'll say so, so what's that are they not in it anymore are they together what's going on with this and she can you shut up which is a reasonable response, I think. Because <laughs> she's nodding. <laughs> yeah, it's a reasonable response. Um, because I'm coming in and I haven't followed the story. I, I've missed half the story. I don't know that so and so split up with so and so and that this person has moved over here and then that person died five episodes ago. I've got no idea. I haven't watched it, I haven't followed. And, and the same thing is true when we as Christians are, you know, 
unnaturally focus on the New Testament to the, to the detriment of the Old. One of the amazing things for me as we've talked through Mark's Gospel in the evening is that Mark is the most Gentile of all Gospels. It's deliberately written to Gentile believers. It's deliberately written to Roman believers. And yet it's saturated with the Old Testament. Not to the extent that Matthew is or that John is, but it still is. In other words, Mark understood that even for a Gentile coming in without the Old Testament background, that the whole basis of the Gospel was there in the Old Testament. You know, while we're on the topic with the Hebrews and warning passages of people thinking you can lose your salvation, and I may have told this story before, but you wouldn't have all heard it, so hey, I can say it again. But I remember doing a, a, a theological Q&A once at a Bible college with a, with, another, another, with a panel of people. And one of the questions was, do you think you can lose your salvation? And there was a pastor there who said, yeah, I think you do. You could. And I'm like, what? And, I, and, he, and he argued it on the basis of John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine. And in that passage in John 15, it says, you know, if, you, if, if the branches produce no fruit, they're chopped off and put in the fire. And I'm like, this guy's not done Isaiah. If he studied the book of Isaiah, he would have understood the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 and how Isaiah had used a theme, not just him, but it had been picked up by others, like Jeremiah and others had taken that theme and run with it, but the the vine was Israel, and that Jesus is taking an existing theme and he's shifting it. And And he's basically saying, you know, I am the fulfillment of what was promised through Israel. Jesus is taking a theme and doing a twist on it. He, he, he's not saying people lose our salvation. He's saying, look, you Jews, for whom I have come, if you don't believe, you're going to be cut off and you're not going to have the promises of the covenant that's available to you. It's not talking about someone who's already saved living in their salvation. It's talking about Jewish believers missing out on covenant promises they could have. But of course, without Isaiah, you just come to John blank, you don't have Isaiah 5, and you don't have a history of of vine. Go look in the Old Testament at vine and vineyard. It's a great study. It's there throughout the Old Testament. But it's just one example of how when you come in later on, you miss the whole background. And I think what's fascinating here for the writer of Hebrews is he's saying, look, To get away from Old Covenant theology, you don't ignore the Old Covenant, you know it better. You know? And we see Old Covenant theology in churches all the time today. People saying in worship songs, you know, we're coming into your presence, Lord. No, you're not. That was in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple, and when the worshippers came to the temple to worship God, they came into his presence. Holy Spirit doesn't live here. I've looked under the piano, don't see the Ark of the Covenant, no Holy of Holies. I tell you where the Holy of Holies is today, if if you're a believer, it's in you, in your heart, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Which means that when you woke up this morning feeling groggy and tired, like I did a little bit this morning, you know, then you're waking up and going, oh, I've got to get up, I've got to go to church. And you are in the presence of God just as much then as you were when we were singing the, the going up a key, you know, exciting finale of all creatures of our God and King. 
which I noticed everybody getting a little bit louder towards the end. That was good. Um, you know, we, we, you, you, when you're worshipping, you say, oh, people say, can you feel the presence of God? No, you can feel your emotional reaction to worship, which is a good and wonderful thing, but you're as much in the presence of God when you're swearing at your dog and kicking it and, and, and having a bad temper and, and, and behaving wrongly. You, you, you are the presence of God. The tw- you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all this old covenant theology comes in. But you see, if you knew your Old Testament, you'd see how that theology works itself out and develops and eventually changes. But you've jumped in towards the end. And so when you occasionally pop back, you miss the point. So here is a great reminder to us to pay closer attention to what we've heard, which contextually is the Old Testament message. And then he said, lest we drift away from it. And again, the the irony here, and I think it's missed by so many, is breathtaking. I think some people will take this phrase in isolation and say, you've got to remember what you've heard in the sense of maybe what you've just heard from me and don't drift away from that or heard what you've heard from, from the apostles. But I think what he's saying is, look, you, it's broader than that. Yes, you mustn't drift away from what you've heard from the apostles, from the eyewitnesses, from the, from the gospel. But also, you're denying the Old Testament when you go back to Old Covenant living. You're denying the message as a whole. And so you must not drift away. You've got to pay closer attention to it. Now, as we shift from the Old Testament to the message of the New, which is where he ends up in verse 4, let's just kind of apply this more specifically to us. There is a broader application here, which is the one that both people get, but it's the one that we mustn't miss and is very important to us, and that is this. If you're a part-time Christian you're going to have a part-time life. You're going to have part-time blessings, and you're going to have part-time opportunities, and you're going to basically not enjoy the blessings that are available to you. The problem is, is that we have a tendency to drift. For the, for the Jewish believers of the first century, while the temple was still standing, the tendency was to drift back to temple Judaism. That was their temptation. That was their cultural drag, as it were. That's not our drag. We don't live in Jerusalem. There's no temple for us to worship in there anyway, in in the sense of a sacrificial system, and it's not our background. But every one of us has to go and live and work in the world. We're surrounded by people who hate Jesus, who think that our beliefs are archaic and bigoted. We're surrounded by people who think that our devotion to Christ is irrelevant and nonsensical, who don't see the purpose. For them, the purpose of life is being happy, pleasing yourself, gathering toys. Maybe if they're really altruistic, it's doing good for the world. But none of them have an understanding that this entire world and everything in it is passing away and that everything we do for Christ has eternal value and everything else has no value. Either they're bonkers or we are. 
We're completely, intrinsically opposed to one another. But we're so surrounded by that. We're so impacted by that. The, 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 the programs that we watch, the people that we talk to, the advertisements around us, and everything in our lives is pulling us and dragging us you know, towards the world and its way of thinking and its way of processing and its way of prioritizing. And if we don't actively fight it, we just drift with it. We go with the flow. Every single one of us. And ultimately, we become useless, we become pointless, we become a waste of space in a spiritual sense. All of our spiritual gifts get unused. Everything that we have is wasted on ourselves and our pleasure. Everything that we do is wasted on ourselves and our pleasure. All our focus is on this life, and everything is lost. We have a tendency to drift. And what is the solution? Pay closer attention to what you have heard. You've you, you got you to be in your word, guys. You've got to make a commitment. You've got you to come on Sundays. You've got to you know, try and get to other meetings if you can. You've got to pray. You've got to meet together and pray. You've got to read your Bibles every day. You've got to commit to doing this and that. Follow old series online. Listen to other preachers. Read books. But you've got to get Bible saturated. Because whether you like it or not, your world's saturated. If you have a job, if you have non-Christian friends, if you live in the world, you are world-saturated. There's nothing you can do about it. The only way you can fight it is by being Bible-saturated. And I don't mean by being Bible-saturated, what I don't mean is getting one of those lousy little fluffy Christian devotionals that takes two verses out of context, gives you a little bit of fluff about it, and you read it in 22 seconds, and you go, oh yeah, that's enough. You know, you might as well watch Oprah Winfrey. Get a little bit of encouragement for your soul for the day. Pay close attention. Dig into the Word. Get answers to your questions. Wrestle with the text. Read larger portions. Figure it out. Make it your dedication. You are all theologians. I am not the church theologian. You are theologians. The question is, is your theology good or bad? Deep or shallow? But you are a theologian. Make it your business to know your Bible. Make it your business. Because you are going to otherwise drift. You see, I'm sorry, this, this preaching today has got a kind of ex exhortative, kind of warning approach to it, but hey, that's the text I have. When we get to these sections, that's how I'm going to be. And so we have to be faithful to the text that we have. Verse 2, for since the message delivered, or declared rather, by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Okay, this gets all Jewishy here, so let's explain the background to it. Okay? The message was delivered by angels. What does he mean by that? Well, one of the, one of the backgrounds to the whole of this section of Hebrews thus far 
has been the exaltation of angels by the Jewish community of that day. In Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2, there's a mention of the giving of the law at Sinai, the giving of the Old Testament law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all of them, 613 in total, if you're interested in such details. And the, the signing of the covenant with Israel. The, uh, the giving of that, the, the giving of the law was um, the, in some way, shape or form that God came and did that with his angels. Now, as you may remember, every single quotation of the Old Testament in Hebrews, of which there are numerous, is from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And what's interesting is in the Septuagint, the reading is slightly different in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2, and it says that at his right hand, that's God's right hand, were angels with him. Isn't that fascinating? It says, Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, at God's right hand were angels with him. Now just think for a second, everything we did last week about Psalm 110, Jesus being at the right hand of God. There was an understanding in Jewish culture of that time that the angels were at the right hand of God, that they were the ones ministering. One of the things he's correcting in Hebrews 1 is he's saying, you know what? They don't have that higher position. Jesus has that higher position. He's the creator. He's equal with God. They worship him. He created them. But it gives you an understanding of the understanding that Jews had. They saw angels, perhaps even being at God's right hand, certainly they saw them as being part of the act of delivering the law. Now, while some aspects of that Jewish understanding were exaggerated and wrong, it seems that one part of it was right. It seems that angels were used with Moses, they were not told specifically in Exodus 20 when the law was given, but we are told retrospectively that the law was given through angels, that the angels, the angelic host, were involved in the giving of the Old, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant. That's reiterated in Acts 7 verse 53 in the sermon by uh, uh, Stephen, and then in Galatians 3.19 by Paul, he says that it was ordained by angels, Stephen says it was delivered by angels. Now, why is that all important? Because what it's saying here is this. The Old Testament, more accurately, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, was given to the Jews, declared by angels, and it was proven to be reliable. Okay? So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, it was good. It was what God had for them at that time, and it was a good thing. Paul in Galatians talks about how it was a tutor leading them forwards towards Christ, preparing them for Christ. And it was given to them, it was proved reliable. Now part of the Old Covenant law was this. The Old Covenant says this. It says, if you obey this law, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey this law, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be punished. Now, what's incredibly brilliant about the New Covenant, as we saw in our studies in Ephesians, is that it's completely different. In Ephesians, Paul is saying, you've been blessed, therefore obey. Completely different way of doing it. But the Old Covenant system was, you need to 
obey, then you get the blessings promised in the covenant. You get the land, you get the milk, milk and honey, land flow, milk and honey, all that. You get, you know, you, you, you prosper, you conquer these nations, you do this and that. It's all good. But when you disobey, then there's consequences. Leviticus 10, Nabad and, and, and Abihu, they burnt incense wrongly. What happened to them? They died. Number 16, the sons of Aaron rebelled against him, decided that they didn't like the person that God had appointed to be their leader and they could do a better job themselves. What happened? Ground swallowed them up. Joshua chapter 7, Akin thought he'd keep the spoils for himself. What happened to him? Stoned to death. It proved reliable. That's what it means in the context by prove reliable. It means he promised to bless you when you obeyed. Did you obey? You were blessed. It's reliable. Did you disobey? You were punished. It was reliable. Ultimately, of course, that's seen in the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And so what he's saying here is that the message of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, delivered by angels. There's your angel link from the previous section. That's why he's argued the last chapter. He says, it proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay? So they received an appropriate punishment according to the law that they were under. Now, follow the argument. This is important. There is a form of argumentation that was popular amongst the Jews and the rabbis called arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser is true, then how much more so is the greater true? Okay? And that's what he's doing here. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What he's saying is this. If under the old covenant, the old covenant people neglected to keep the law, they received punishment. Now that we've got such a greater covenant, now that we have a greater revelation, how much more so should we expect there to be consequences when we don't keep the covenant? You say, hold on a second, you just quoted Ephesians to me. You just said we've been blessed... And, and therefore obey. Absolutely right. Under the new covenant, we don't get the blessings after we obey. We get the blessings from day one, which is the motivation to obey. Completely different. But if you don't obey, there will be consequences. Now this, you, you can read through this passage. There's nowhere here that suggests you're going to lose your salvation. We'll deal with the other warning passages probably in more detail and we'll look at things there that might look more difficult. But he's clearly not saying here, and you're going to lose your salvation. He's simply saying, there's consequences. When, when the ground opened up in Numbers 16 and the sons of Aaron were swallowed by the earth, did God break his covenant with Israel? Did the covenant cease to exist? Were they no longer Jews? Were they not circumcised when they died? Is there any indication that those people changed their salvation status as the ground swallowed them? None at all. 
there was just a physical punishment. In the same way, we who are under the new covenant, our covenant with God is such that he's given us blessings. The blessings are there whether we obey or not. The blessings are ours forever, they're always ours. And he's given us his spirit which guarantees that we are going to be redeemed finally with glorified bodies in a sinless state and his job will be done with us, we'll see him face to face. There's no doubt about that at all. But nevertheless, there are consequences. Look, Hebrews has these famous warning passages and what amazes me is some people don't join the dots together and understand that we go from warning passage to warning passage to warning passage and we end up in the very, very famous and well-known passage in Hebrews 12 that talks about discipline and God disciplining those he loves. And the very fact that we are in covenant and that God is our Father and that he does love us means that when we step out of line, he does punish us. Now what's the difference? There's a huge difference for starters. The difference is it's not wrath. God's not angry with us. There's no punishment in the sense of you must pay for your sins. That's really important that we get that. A lot of people I know struggle with the whole idea of this God on the throne wagging his finger at you and you're never quite good enough and you, you impose these kind of human experiences you may have had upon to God. Let's be abundantly clear on this point before we go any further. Every sin that you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit, God hated and his wrath was burning and boiling over it. And he poured that wrath onto his son at the cross at Calvary and there's no wrath left. None at all. God does not wag his finger at you. He does not raise his voice at you. He does not, he does not say, what are you playing at, you idiot? His wrath is gone. It's over. It's finished. But, but, because he loves you, he cannot have you put your foot out of line and hurt yourself, hurt the body, and hurt his namesake without him dealing with it. There are consequences. In the immediate context, for the people to whom he's writing, their temptation is to go into the world, to go into their world, which is old temple Judaism, go back to the temple and offer sacrifices. Offer sacrifices? Your Passover lamb has just died once for all to replace all sacrifices. And you're going to go and kill more animals as if somehow that's going to appease God simply to cover your own back? Do you not think there's going to be consequences? You need to be telling your neighbor who's in Old Testament Judaism about the freedom that is in Christ, that they're free from the sacrificial system, that Christ's blood covers their sins. You need to preach the gospel to your neighbor. And yet under their pressure and under their persecution, you, you're just going to capitulate? Of course there's going to be consequences. 70 AD, the Romans surrounded the city. 
siege Jerusalem. And a little bit before 70 AD, when the siege began, people were stuck, they couldn't get away. The Jewish Christians had Jesus' words ringing in their ears where he'd said, when the city surrounded, go and flee to the mountains. But they couldn't, it was a siege. Romans misunderestimated the, is that a word, misunderestimated or underestimated? Anyway, they didn't take into account the resilience of the Jews. Didn't have enough supplies, didn't realize it would take that long. So they left, and the Jews are like, yay, Romans have gone, we're all right. The Jewish Christians fled. Apart from those who are committed to maintain the sacrificial system and were associated with the old covenant believers rather than the new covenant believers. The Romans came back, re-seized the city, it fell on the temple and its sacrificial system was destroyed and they died. Did they lose their salvation? Did a person who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, believed that he died for their sins, believed that he rose again from the dead, believed that he was the Messiah, did they, because they capitulated and went back to going to temple worship services, did they lose their salvation? No, they didn't, but they lost their lives. And perhaps more importantly, before that, they lost their witness. Now again, None of you are going to be sacrificing bulls next week. I hope. But the world calls you. And there's stuff at stake. There are things at stake here. Firstly, there's your own life. I don't know what you have done or want to do with your lives. We're all different, varied people, varied backgrounds, varied experience, varied gifts. But I'll tell you this. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose you. He saved you by the blood of his Son and he gave you his Holy Spirit because he wanted to empower you to do work that is yours and yours alone. And the most stupid thing you could possibly do is not do it. The most stupid thing you could do is live your life like this world around you is real. Live your life like the people at work and their approval is somehow important to you. Somehow matters. That you would somehow allow yourself to be de-Christianized. Oh, not completely, they know I'm a Christian. But just enough so you're not too controversial so that you can have decent friendships and not be that awkward person. And lose your witness that somehow you might just focus on this life here and now and forget that what you do for Christ today has value that will be treasure for all eternity. That's your temptation. That's my temptation. We've got to decide who we're living for. It's pointless coming to church every week or every other week, calling ourselves Christians, having a Bible we read every few days, and basically be people who just live in the world and it makes no difference. 
We've got to let the word impact us. We've got to study it. We've got to get to know it better. We've got to pay attention to it. Close attention, verse 1. And we've got to be a witness to those around us. We basically need to say, Christ, I'm yours. What do you have for me? What do you have for me? How many years do you have left? Some here will have less than others. But the time that we have, what do we want to accomplish? Do we want to make money so we have a nice standard of living? Do we want to accomplish something so we get a sense of achievement? Or do we want to leave something that will have eternal value, that will resonate for eternity? There's more to it, but we'll come to that as we proceed. This salvation, we're told, was declared at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. It's one of the main verses, by the way, that makes me realize that this was not written by Paul because Paul received his revelation uh, directly. He always talks about direct revelation and independence from the other apostles in that regard. And here this person is simply saying that uh, revelation was first given to Christ and then those who first heard it passed it on. He's a second-generation Christian, if you like. And, uh, and so it is. And funnily enough, I, I've argued for Luke being the primary author. And it's, there's a parallel here with Luke chapter 1 and verse 2, which uses similar terms when he starts his gospel. And so this salvation was heard by the Lord. It was spoken of by the apostles. And then it says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. In other words, let's, let's take the broad thing first and then go to the specifics. What he's saying is, you know this to be true because the message came from the Lord to the apostles and then it was backed, backed up by the signs and wonders that basically attested to, authenticated the message. Now, a couple of things to note from that. Firstly this. If the signs and wonders and miracles weren't real, as some liberal theologians and unbelievers would have us believe, then why would he make this argument to people? It would make no sense. What miracles? What are you talking about? The very basis of this argument implies that, that there are, that was common knowledge that these signs and wonders and miracles had happened. In fact, it's very funny, in the Jewish writing, the Mishnah, one of their key uh, kind of scriptures, as it were, rabbinical writings, um, it's not in the Mishnah today, it's been taken out. But if you go, if you were able to look at copies from ancient times that they couldn't completely destroy, there are, there's reference in the Mishnah to Jesus basically being a magician or conjurer who did what he did by the power of Beelzebul. Which, of course, is the same accusation that the Jewish leaders gave to him during the Gospels as well. 
But I find that fascinating because as the centuries wore on, the best argument against Jesus was, oh, he never did any of that, so we'll just take that reference out. But at the time, they had to explain how he did miracles. It was attested to, everyone knew about it. It was there. And so what he's saying is, you may well have had the old covenant given by angels, but this new covenant was given by the Son, by the Lord himself, and it's been authenticated by things that you yourselves have seen in your midst and are aware of. Powerful testimony. Now, I don't want to get distracted too much, but I need to kind of touch on how this then affects us today. I think one of the big misunderstandings in many wings of the church today is that in the early church, there were just signs and wonders going on everywhere and everybody was doing it, you know? It was almost like you didn't have to cook dinner because people were just, you know, multiplying fish and bread just all the time. I mean, everybody was on it. Absolutely not the case. Read the book of Acts. It was the apostles who were doing the miracles. It wasn't everybody. It was a very few limited number of people. The apostles and prophets were the ones who God gave the supernatural ability to do that. He talks here specifically about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit in Ephesians 4 and the benefits of the church, he talks about how there are, there are certain gifts that are unique amongst the others. And they're the gifts that are the ones that rather than being works of ministry per se, are, are gifts that equip the saints to do ministry. They enable people to use their other gifts. And specifically, he lists pastor-teacher, so that's what I'm doing now. I am equipping you by the teaching of the Word that you might be more equipped to do your ministry. And he also mentions in that list evangelists, because, of course, if the gospel's not preached, then no one has gifts to start with. They have to be saved and have the Holy Spirit. And then he talks about apostles and prophets. But you see, earlier in Ephesians... When he talks about apostles and prophets, he uses this analogy. He says the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone. We know that one, don't we? Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone in ancient days was the perfect stone. Of all the stones in the building, it was the most perfect one because the lines were perfectly straight. Because if you're, say, building a, a rectangular foundation, then if you get the cornerstone right, then the lines that you draw for the rest of the foundation prove to be straight as well. And then what you do is you put the rest of the foundation down, right? Now, if you're a homeowner, you might decide to do home improvements. I know some of you are. You might decide to add on a, an annex or do an extension, build a patio, do some other stuff, right? But I'm guessing that you're not building the foundation underneath the house anymore. The foundation's built and then everything goes on top of it. And Paul specifically says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. The church is built on their ministry. It's built on their ministry. So whenever I see a church where it says, well, our leader is apostle so-and-so, I immediately, ooh, 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 I've got these alarm bells ringing in my head saying, okay, that's a dodgy church. Because now here's someone trying to claim apostolic authority like they're somehow more important or can do amazing things, and that's just not the case. There are people who are going around saying, oh, well, I'm this miraculous healer. I can do these healing things, you know. Well, go to a hospital then. Get it documented. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal. God does heal. 
He heals today. I have no problem with that at all. Please don't mishear me. What I'm saying is the idea that we have people like the apostles and prophets of old who just go around doing these astonishing miracles all the time, if it was true, it would be documented, and it's not. I tell you, I'll tell you this little story briefly. I know I'm keeping on time. But i tell you this story very briefly. I went to a, uh, a rally when I was an uh, uneducated and ignorant teenage Christian that was hosted by someone you may have heard of called Benny Hinn, who is the most uh, appalling of all appalling false teachers that have ever walked the globe. And uh, he was doing a healing rally. And we went uh, to this healing rally with a group of people from our church. It wasn't a good church. I, I was, uh, as I said, ignorant back in those days. And we went along, and there was a friend of mine who came with us from a church. And uh, he recently sprained his ankle while playing football. That's soccer to you boys and girls here. Uh, but he sprained his ankle playing football, and it was in a little bandage, and he was on a crutch on one side. And we walked into the, um, we walked into the arena, and we got in there, and the stewards came in. They said, oh, you seem to be struggling there. Look, I'll tell you what. Just sit down in this wheelchair, and we can give you priority seating, and you, you're not going to be able to get up the stairs by yourself. He said, oh, that's kind. That's nice. Thank you. So the rest of us went up the stairs to the higher stalls to go and see the, the rally, and uh, he went in a wheelchair and got wheeled to the front. Lo and behold, halfway through the meeting, what happens? Benny Him pulls him up on stage, gets him wheeled up on his wheelchair, and lifts him up out of the chair, and he starts walking, and the crowd's going, oh, oh, he's walking out of his wheelchair. And I'm like, he just sprained his ankle playing football, guys. Poor guy looks so confused. And let me tell you the fruit of that. That man no longer walks with the Lord today. He walked away from the faith and he walked away from his wife. This is serious stuff. So we don't want to get distracted by this nonsense. The apostles had an era where they were especially gifted to authenticate the message of Christ, to build the foundation of the church, and the ministry of the apostles and prophets today, we have here in the Word. That's the ministry of the apostles and prophets. You have the, the apostles and prophets ministered to you every day. And it was authenticated. And the authentication process is really interesting and fascinating, but I cannot go there. But if we did a study through Acts, we could go through in detail. But, but it authenticated the message. But in the context of Hebrews, you got it from the Son, and then it was backed up. And that's better than the message received from the angels. Last point here, and I'm done. It's interesting, as he wraps this up, he says... The gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The apostles and prophets weren't the only one who had gifts. As I've already said, every single one of us has gifts. Now this is something I'm really keen to emphasize. I'm coming into a church that is a church which is traditional in many senses. And I don't mean stylistically, I mean simply in the sense that a lot of people come because it's their church, it's where they grew up, what have you. Um, you know, and there, there, there is a sense... I think often in many churches that we have this understanding that um, the church is just kind of a part of what we do. It's, it's an add-on or what have you. Listen, one of the reasons I did Ephesians as the first book I taught was to teach through the congregational 
corporate nature of sanctification. The problem is, is if people don't get that message, they may not be turning up every week to hear the message. So it kind of becomes a reoccurring problem. But to summarize it briefly here, it's this. Sanctification is not possible as a Christian hermit. Sanctification is not possible alone. You do not get to sit at home and watch your favorite preachers on YouTube do your, ba- your, your daily devotions and your Bible reading and say your prayers and get sanctified. It's not possible. Paul is very, very clear that the maturing of the body of Christ, which is us being conformed into the image of the Son, being conformed to become more Christ-like, that happens through the gifts of the Spirit that he has given to us to minister one to another. In other words, you, if you're a Christian, have the Holy Spirit within you, and he gives you gifts, at least one, possibly more. You bring those gifts with you every Sunday. They're not for you. I have the gift of teaching. I hope you agree with it, or you wouldn't be here. But I I think I do, okay? That gift for me personally is a monumental pain in the butt. Very seriously. It has given me stress, problems, pain, conflict, difficulties, and quite frankly, most of me wishes I never had it. But you see, this is the thing about gifts. They're not for us. They're for everybody else. And in some of my darkest hours, the things that have kept me going is you. Because I'm not here for me, I'm here for you. When you don't want to come to church, you're cheating everybody else out of you. And your ministry is here to bless and equip, equip, wrong word, that's me, minister, build up, sanctify, transform the rest of the body. In the context of this whole passage, if you slip off into the world, if you love the world more than Jesus, that affects all of us. You can't move forwards in your Christian life without a corporate part of it. Because you need me, and I need you. I need your encouragement. I need your love, I need your support. You need other people to pray for you, to rebuke you, to lift you up when you're down. You need people to pray for you. You need people to faithfully serve you, people to play worship for you, people to to, to do the jobs that you don't even get noticed get done around the church that you take for granted every week. You need people to do the practical things, the spiritual things. We're all gifted in so many ways, and yet we still have this mentality where we come to church, sit our backsides down, get fed, get what we want, and go. That's not church, that's not Christianity, and that won't sanctify you. I think that's clear. Because if we slip off into the world, your brothers and sisters lose out. If you fall into sin, 
your brothers and sisters lose out. But let me end on this positive note. If you come to church thinking you're not important, repent of that now. And, I'm, and I use the word repent in, in the gentlest sense of the word, in that this isn't a rebuke, it's an encouragement. We need you. You're important. You contribute, you bring something every time you're here. And if you say, well, I don't think I do, I don't know why I bring, then pray for God to show you your gifting. Just start by fellowshipping more with people, getting to know people better, catching up with people in the week, phoning people, checking on people. Just do what you can do until what you're supposed to do becomes evident. But don't be a hermit. Sanctification is corporate. Never forget it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for these passages to warn us. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't be distracted by the world. We wouldn't drift off. We wouldn't walk away. And it's so tempting. It's so appealing. There's so much in the world that would take us. Lord, may your Son be more glorious, more delightful, and more appealing to our hearts than anything else in this universe. Amen.